0: Well, good morning, church family. It's good to be with you. On week two of our study of the book of Job, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and just be turning there. Job is just one before Psalm, so right in the middle of your Bible. That song was really a perfect way to kind of enter into this sermon time. And uh, we're going to begin a- around Job 30. I'll pick up a few places before then. But last week we we kind of introduced this theme uh, with uh, a drama kind of monologue uh, that Taylor Drake, Taylor and his wife, uh, fairly new to Highland Park, but did kind of a, uh, the impression that from the book that C.S. Lewis wrote that was really powerful and kind of got our attention because we've all felt uh, the song of suffering. We've sung the song of suffering before, and if we have not been in the midst of the storm of suffering we can kind of just bet on it that we'll be there one day, because that's kind of how life goes. We're often left wondering, how can I survive? How can I get through the suffering? And no book in the entire world deals with suffering more honestly, emotionally, theologically, and practically than the book of Job. So it is so helpful to us. And we know that life can unravel at any moment, at any point, it can unravel. One phone call can change everything. And uh, in your in, on your sermon page, in your bulletin, we have some help in, on the front and back. On the back, I listed a few resources and helps uh, for you there. Uh, there's nine kind of big principles that we're trying to touch on, all nine of them, through this th- three-week series. And uh, one of them that I really want to kind of touch on and, and and dive into today is this principle that we see all throughout the book of Job, that suffering... And prosperity are often misunderstood. both of those things, the great in life and the terrible in life are often misunderstood. When job uh, we see him in chapter one, everything is great he 's got uh, wealth he 's got job security he 's got a lovely family uh, he 's got health. everything is going for him, but just a few verses in we realize that things are taking a turn. And Satan says to God, well, Job only likes you. He only loves you because everything's great in his life. And God says, "Uh uh-uh, Job really loves me. And Satan puts Job to the test. God lets him uh, do some things to Job that kind of leave us scratching our head and wondering how often that happens. And uh, we get this glimpse that God is still in control of all of this, but soon Job loses in rapid succession uh, his wealth, his job security, and even his own children, and then later his health. He loses everything and experiences this immense suffering, and he responds with seven words that we talked about last week. These seven words uh, that prove that it's possible to worship at any point in life. Those seven words, Job's first response Blessed be the name of the Lord. God has given. God has taken away. And so my resolution, my commitment, my faith says, regardless of what happens, blessed be the name of the Lord. However, Job, his own wife, says, no, you should not do that. Things are going terrible. Something is wrong. Job has some friends, and his friends at first are great because they just sit and they're quiet and they listen. What friends should do. But then they start opening their mouths and everything goes wrong. (laughs) Uh, They begin trying to say, well, this is why you're suffering. And soon they actually add to Job's misery. We're going to jump into their arguments here in just a bit. But Job's first response of blessed be the name of the Lord doesn't stick. As we get deeper into the book, we see that Job uh, grows bitter and angry and saying, God, why would you let this happen? I don't deserve this. One time I was in my office and a lady I'd never met uh, pulled into the parking lot and came in and she uh, belonged to a prominent church here in Tulsa. Actually had even worked at that church for quite a while <clears throat> and her life had gone fairly well. She had never gotten really wealthy but she always had enough and she'd always had good health. But she just that week had been told by the doctor, you have cancer. You only have A few months to live. There's nothing we can do for you. And her whole world, her whole understanding of God came crumbling upon her. Because what she had always believed was, if I'm a good person and I have enough faith, things will go well for me. Call that the health and wealth gospel. That if we're good, things go well. I'll always be healthy and wealthy as long as I'm faithful to God. And suddenly, when the doctor had said, you don't have long left, you have this cancer, she did not just have a crisis of dealing with her own pending death. She had this crisis of, what did I do? Why was I, where was I unfaithful? I I was giving into the offering, and I was uh, not sinning in any big ways that I I know about, and I I didn't do anything bad to somebody. Why does God suddenly... Hate me. When she came into my office it was like a thousand pounds were on her shoulders. She couldn't even hardly look up at me. She felt so much guilt and shame. I have good news for you that it doesn't have to be that way. That the book of Job provides a different conclusion to the one she had reached as she walked in. You see, the skeptic and the cynic says, Once suffering comes upon us, they say, See, there is no God. Or they say, if there is a God, then what's the point? He's just a cruel tyrant, so who would want to serve him anyway? That's the skeptic and the cynic. But there's also the church person, the moralist, who says, if I do good things, good things happen to me, always. And if I do bad things, well, then bad things are going to happen to me, always. And that's just the way the world works. But the book of Job says, um, uh uh-uh, we're throwing both of those positions out. We have a new way that you need to understand how the world works. You need to understand God in a different way and yourself in a different way. And as people, we have to get to that understanding, a biblical understanding of suffering, or will one day end up like either the skeptic who says, I hate God, if there is even one, or the lady who felt so much shame and so beat up saying, why did I deserve this? So let's pray. God, we have a lot to learn about you. And uh, there's nothing more difficult than to try to figure out uh, why suffering happens. That question beats us up. And I pray today that you would teach us from your wisdom about how to have a biblical, godly understanding of suffering that not only keeps us from growing bitter and angry or confused and shamed, but hopeful. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The argument of Job's friends was basically, you surely deserve your suffering. You've done something wrong, and you deserve it. Your sin has caused it. Chapter 4, verse 7, one of them says... Who, being innocent, has ever suffered? In other words, all the innocent people, they've never suffered. This this would not happen unless you were guilty. But Job protests. He says, no, no, I, I, I haven't done anything terrible. I don't deserve what's happening to me. All this suffering, I don't deserve it. And his friends respond back. Uh, they say, I wish God would rebuke you. You deserve everything that you get. We don't know what you did, but it must have been really, really bad. Because you deserve all of this. And Job responds back. He says, you know what? You guys are terrible doctors and even worse counselors. And Job says, if you would just be quiet, you'd be so much smarter. <laughs> Can you see the discussion wasn't going well? But if you, if, if you took my challenge and read through the book of Job, you realize that that discussion is most of the book of Job. I mean, chapter after chapter after chapter. Meanwhile, Job's suffering continues. And if you look at chapter 30, I just want to get a glimpse of his suffering. Verse 27, this is Job talking. He says, The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I have become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My lyre is tuned to mourning, and my pipe is to the sound of wailing. In other words, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm singing the song of suffering. I know nothing but suffering. I feel so alone in my suffering. But but Job keeps arguing and saying, I don't deserve this. He actually gets specific with it. He says, listen, I don't lust or flirt with other women. I give to the poor. I care for the fatherless. I've taken care of the homeless. I don't put my trust in money. He lists all of these things. You can actually step aside from our study of suffering and just look at Job and make a big long list of what does a godly man do. And you can actually get to a pretty good list here. The problem is Job is saying, these things mean that I don't deserve Suffering. Job's argument has been with his three friends, but there's actually a fourth friend there. The fourth friend is younger, so he's kept quiet the whole time until we get all the way to chapter 36. And while maybe not as abrasive as his other friends, he basically says the same thing. And get the gist of what he's saying if you look at chapter 36, verse 11. He says, If they obey and serve him, serve God, They will spend the rest of their days in, there's that word, prosperity, and their years in contentment. In other words, Job, if you obeyed God, you would be uh, full of prosperity, health, wealth, everything would be going great for you. And Job keeps saying, I don't deserve this. And whereas Job's friends say, You're suffering. Because you're bad, Job is saying, I don't deserve to suffer because I'm good. But do you see their arguments are actually the same? They're both kind of thinking of God the same way, thinking that that God punishes directly those who have sinned and he makes life all great and wonderful for those who are good. They both kind of view God the same way. It's both from a moralistic perspective. In some ways, their view of God is pretty much like karma. You get what you deserve. There was a time in uh, Jeremiah's life where if you've read the book of Jeremiah, you know that he endures lots of suffering. And he comes at it with a lot of humility, but he actually says, God, there, there is just this one issue I have with you. And it has to do with your system of justice. I don't like it. <laughs> it's not fair to me. And we have to kind of come back and say, What does God say about justice and fairness? And I I need to just pause for a moment and talk about the book of Proverbs. And there's other sections of the Bible that are written like the wisdom literature of Proverbs. See, the book of Proverbs tells us to do certain things and there will be certain results. If you work hard, uh, if the farmer works hard during the summer, during the spring, during the fall then when winter comes, the farmer will have enough food to provide for his family. Now, is that proverbially true? Is that usually true? Yes. Is that a good principle? Yes. Is it true every single time? No. We talked about the potato famine. Does that mean all the people in, all the Irish, just were totally lazy for that year? No. Sometimes... God's general principles from places like the book of Proverbs are meant to be that, general principles that guide our living. But it's not a promise for every single time because the person who is wise with their money, it, does it generally go better with them for them financially? Sure. Does the person who works hard generally do better at their job? Sure. Do, the, the parent who disciplines their child, does their child generally grow up in the way of the Lord? Yeah. But is God saying this happens every single time? This uh, there, there's never any exceptions. I don't give anybody else free will about what is happening. There aren't bad things that happen to the earth. There's not disease. There's not these different things that come. No, and we really have to understand that as people who put our trust in Scripture to have this understanding of God and how He even communicates to us in Scripture. I am so thankful that God communicates through poem and through the Proverbs, and, and through uh, literature in Scripture that isn't just all one, two, three, four, five, I mean, just a list of things. I am so thankful that God communicates to us in that way. But because he communicates to us in those ways, we have to be Bible students and understand what is God communicating to us in this. And to do the difficult work of interpreting the Bible. To the person that says, well, I just read the Bible for what it is, baloney. You read, we, we all do interpretive work. We, we all have to look at scripture and understand it. Because when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, you have to interpret that, don't you? Well, I just do what the Bible says, so I just love my neighbor over here. Hmm? Is that what Jesus is saying? Or is Jesus saying, love everybody? That's what Jesus is saying. <laughs> love anybody you come in contact with. So we all have to put on our, our Bible student hats when we read scripture. Okay, back into the book of Job. Are you with me? So uh, God is listening to Job. He's listening, and he's listening, and Job is just full of agony and suffering. And Job keeps pressing, and after listening for chapter after chapter after chapter, we get all the way to chapter 38, and finally God says... It's my turn to speak now. Have have you ever um, launched into this argument with somebody and the argument sounded really, really great? You're like, yeah, I'm winning this argument. It goes really, really well and all they need is one sentence to put you in your place. It's kind of what happens here. Look at chapter 38, when God finally, after listening for so long, which tells us a lot about God's patience and compassion for us, And even his presence to just be there and to listen. In chapter 38, though, God turns the tables. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Do you hear God there? He's saying, Your words don't even have any knowledge in them. You're just speaking empty words. And when he says, brace yourself like a man, I'm kind of picturing Red Rover, Red Rover, God's coming on over. So it's like, (laughs) get your feet in the sand, God says, because my argument is coming at you. And you're not going to be standing when I'm done. He says, and then we almost go to the courtroom scene. I'll be the one asking the questions now. By the way, when God is finished, Job doesn't ask any more questions. Job doesn't argue anymore, so God knows exactly what he's talking about. And so God begins to speak to Job now that he has his attention. And I imagine after God's, that statement, brace yourself like a man, I imagine you could audibly hear Job gulp. But then God begins to say, here's why you should be real careful in your accusations against me. We we could read the next uh, three or so chapters. Uh, I'm not gonna read all of them, but I just wanna pick out a few of the verses. Chapter 38, verse four, this is God speaking to Job. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand how that all works, Job. Do you understand that? Verse 12, have you ever given orders to the morning or shown dawn its place? Verse 35, do you send the lightning bolts on their way, Job? I couldn't remember if that was you or me. Do they report to you? Here we are, Job. Get ready to send us from the storm. And God goes on in uh, in chapter 38. It's just one reason after another of why Job should be Uh, respectful of God and knowing that God is greater than him. But chapter 39 and 40 and then even 41 continue. God lists many of the animals and says, Job, do you know when the wild beasts give birth and they raise their new young? Job's thinking, no, I don't really know when that happens. And God says, think of the scariest, biggest creatures of the sea and on earth, Job, Can you control them? Can you tame them? Can you redirect them with your words? Can you do all that? Can you put the stars in their place and rearrange them if you want to? Job, can you do those things? God goes on. But really, the clinching verse, what God is saying, I think can be summed up in chapter 40, verse 8. This is one of those verses you might want to underline and come back to at some points because this really summarizes God's argument. He says this, Would you condemn me to justify yourself, would you condemn me, the God of the universe, in order to justify yourself? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves. You see, last week and, and this week again, I want to remind you that God is okay with our grieving, with our lamenting in times of suffering. He's the one who made us to be emotional beings who grieve and cry and weep, and He is okay. God is big enough to hear our complaints and our arguments and our frustration and our anger, and I don't think that you should keep that bottled up and never try to speak to him about it or anybody else about it that can help you with it. No, no, that's not helpful. However, with that said, the book of Job teaches us there comes this time when we need to quit speaking and we need to listen to God. And what we will hear from God is, Do you think your way of justice is really better than mine? Or might I actually know what I'm doing? Do you want to compare your compassion versus my compassion? Do you want to compare your power versus my power? Do you want to compare your wisdom versus my wisdom? Your knowledge versus my knowledge? Your ability versus my ability? Your perspective versus my perspective? A couple years ago, uh, we had this series, and we had these big chess pieces uh, on the stage. And uh, imagine that you are standing on the middle of a chessboard. Except it's not a normal chessboard. It's it's a thousand times bigger than the normal chessboard, and you're just a pawn. And all that you can see are your teammates and the opponents, but about two or three deep. You know, you can see a couple rows over, but. You're so small there on this giant chessboard that you just, it kind of just gets all lost on you. You see, well, there's a couple of the bad guys in front of me, a couple of my friends behind me, and then the chess master says, move forward one space. And you're like, well, I can't go up there. You, you don't know what's up there. All this stuff I see is really scary, and I'm going to get taken by the other team's night because I see that guy over there and that guy over there, and, and... No, go go to that space. Because in some ways our whole world operates like this chessboard where God doesn't just push us but says, I want you to go here. I want you to go here. God has the power to push us if He wants to. You can do that. But God often says, I want you to go here. I want you to trust me. Because God says, I have this view of the whole chessboard. And I'm not just thinking about the next move. I'm thinking about two, three, four, five generations of moves. I'm thinking about your grandkids right now, so you go here. I'm thinking about your neighbor right here, so you go here. I'm thinking about this unreached people group in this country you've never been to, and I need you to go here because I'm thinking about this move and this move and this move. And we have to ask ourselves, what is God most interested in? Is it in my comfort? or in that his will would be done on this earth. I don't think it has to be either or. God cares about you, and he cares when you suffer and when I suffer. But if there comes a place on the chessboard where God has to choose and say, this is going to be uncomfortable for you, but it's really going to be best move here, what ought we do to say, no, God, you're out of your mind? or to complain, or to say, "Mm, maybe you know what you're doing, Lord. And so God wants to move us. See, Job wasn't wrong for accusing his friends of being wrong. They were. Job was correct in that. Job's problem was that he was, a couple things, several things, overstating his case was the first one. Really, Job? You're perfect? You don't deserve anything wrong in your life. You sure you want to stack that one up? You sure you want God to review your entire life? Because the truth was, Job seemed like he was a pretty good guy from our perspective. How about from God's perspective? Who knows no sin? How good is he then? See, Job was overstating his case. Secondly, he was making demands of God. See, the problem with Job's perspective was that if he was good, then God had to do good things to him always and make sure his life was perfect. And at that point, who really is God? God becomes Job's servant. God, you make my life good. You owe me one. Third, Job was assuming that he got what he deserved. It it, it just, like his whole thought life, was out of whack with how it really plays out. In John chapter 9, Jesus is with his disciples, and they're going along, and they come across a man who was blind from birth, the text tells us. And when the disciples see this man, they say, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents? Because they're assuming it had to be one of them, because if he's born blind, he must have done something bad. The disciples needed to read up on the book of Job. Because Jesus answers with this, neither, neither of them sinned. It wasn't the guy's fault that he was blind, and it wasn't his parents' fault that he was blind. There's another option here. I hope you come back next week as we delve into the surprising blessings that can come through suffering. But what I want you to hear is that throughout scripture, it's not just Job that we see the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. And when you suffer, you don't just need to start pointing fingers and trying to figure out who to blame. It makes us feel better to blame somebody, but it's actually not very helpful. It's counterproductive. We try to control God in that. So I want to talk application for just a moment with you, because whether you're in the midst of suffering or you're trying to help a friend, I want to just give you three little bits of help here, of application. The first is this. Avoid pat answers. Pat answers. You know the pat answers that are like, hey, it'll be all right. I'm sure everything will be fine. Uh, it, it'll, be, it'll, it'll be great. Can you imagine one of the early believers telling Stephen, hey, Stephen, don't worry, man, it'll be fine. Everything will be okay. Whoa, that rock hit him in the head. Oh, another one. Oh, he died. What are you going to do with that theology? 'Cause it only holds up as long as everybody in your life who's a believer has only good things happen to them. And then what? You know, h- how about the person who's with who's with Paul? Ah, it'll all be it, it'll be just fine. He shipwrecks. <laughs> it'll be fine, gets bent by a snake. It'll be fine, gets beaten to within about an inch of his life. It'll be fine, gets thrown in prison. It'll be fine, finally gets martyred, executed. It'll be fine, Paul. Maybe we need to avoid pat answers. The best thing that Job's friends did was they just listened for a while. I wish they would have listened for another 38 chapters. <laughs> that, that's what they needed to do, to just listen because they had these pat answers, but the truth was they weren't founded in, in wisdom. So avoid those pat answers that sometimes want to escape your lips. And don't say those because they're not of Scripture. Second is you need to get Good advice. You really need to get good advice. We're not going to go through this now, uh, but we listed uh, just a, a few ways to to kind of measure the advice that you're getting or giving. And um, that's on the back of the sermon page, and then there's a link on the Highland Park Facebook page that takes you to that full article. But we need to think about, uh, is the advice that I'm get, getting, is it any good or not? Is it based in Scripture or not? Is it based in compassion or not? And when we give it, we sure better be making being confident that we can give wise advice, and if we can't, we just need to be really quiet. Uh, there was a, um, a a famous ship uh, that took off from the British coast in 1845, and their goal is actually a couple, uh, couple boats, uh, was to discover, make a chart through the Northwest Passage. So it was going to be this big, important thing. And they expected the voyage to take anywhere from one to two years. The problem was they only had 12 days worth of fuel. They had really nice silverware. They had an organ. They had all these fancy things. And they took off. And uh, weeks and months later, they finally found the boats. You know what they found inside the boats? They found really nice silverware next to the cannibalized bodies. Didn't go all that well. I don't know who forgot to ask the question, are we prepared for this? (laughs) Is this a good idea? And when we're suffering, oh my goodness, we need to make sure we're listening to good advice. Otherwise, it's going to make everything so much worse, as it did for Job with his friends for so long. The third bit of application that's so important is this. Embrace that you might not figure it out. You know, I think a lot of us, when we are suffering... Uh, if God would just answer that question, why, we'd be like, okay, I can take it now. My leg is broken, and if God just said, hey, hey, Brian, your leg is broken, but you're gonna do so much reading that you're gonna read this book that's gonna change your life and you're gonna be a better leader, then be like, okay, well, I can handle the broken leg then. But you know what? Nowhere in the book of Job does God ever come to, to him and say, here's why. Let me answer that why question. And in your life, you can probably go back to times of suffering and there's some of them now you can look back and say, oh, I know exactly why. Or at least I know a lot of why. (laughs) God let me do that. But there's other things in life in which you've suffered and to this day, even if it happened 20, 30 years ago, you're like, boy, I don't know why that happened. And and I want to tell you, you need to learn not just to accept that. I think we actually need to learn to embrace it. To say that God knows things that we just can't know, and that's actually a good thing. If he wanted us to really, really know why, he could tell us. He could make that known. So we have to trust that there's some reason. In fact, part of the book of Job, one of the big themes that we see is Job learns to trust God even though he doesn't know why he's suffering. That's a big one. Because if we can learn to trust God like that, hasn't our faith grown exponentially? Hasn't God done a great work? in us. You know if if God could have said, "Hey, hey Job, thousands of years later, people at Highland Park will be talking about you." Job's like, "Okay, I can handle this for another day." But he never knew, and you may never know. Yet maybe in the life to come, God will say, "Well, let me go down the list of things for why you suffered." Maybe or maybe we won't care at that point. I don't know. But that question of why we have to embrace not having it answered. Or we will always be frustrated and have this angst in us. But Job gets the memo. He, he understands. In fact, he uses only six sentences to frame his apology. To summarize, he says this, I spoke of things I did not understand. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In other words, I have this whole new understanding of you, God. Some of you, I hope today, will have a whole new understanding of God. And then Job says, therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job says, God, I am sorry. Six sentences. And you know what God does? He immediately accepts Job's apology. I mean, with all the groveling, with all the whining, with all the baseless complaining, day after day after day, you would... If you were God, you would make Job work a little harder for it, wouldn't you? You'd be like, okay, come on, keep it coming. Sure. Keep it coming. <laughs> keep telling me what a doofus you were. I want to hear more of it. Uh-uh. God says, all right, you are forgiven. And and God says, as for your friends, they were foolish. They didn't know. They, they thought incorrectly about me. They thought incorrectly about you. They were foolish. But I'll forgive them too." Job, if you pray for them, mm. suddenly Job becomes the priest for the others. Job stands between them and God, and Job does. He forgives his friends. You want to know how you forgive your friends who have hurt you the most? You accept God's forgiveness of you. Because when God does this forgiveness inside us and says, yeah, you really blew it, but I forgive you, then all of that stuff can be released, and we say, okay, I forgive the people in my life who hurt me the most, and Job does it right there. He prays for his friends, and God forgives them. There's this beautiful moment of reconciliation. I think this is the critical chapter in the whole book in which uh, these people have uh, been so angry at each other, and suddenly in this one chapter, God reconciles them to him and to each other. This beautiful thing happens because of forgiveness. I often hear how Christians are to live a life of victory, and I think that's true, but we need to define our terms a little bit. That that word victory sometimes can uh, be assumed to just mean all the stuff that Job had at first, and all the stuff that he would have again, the health and the wealth and everything going fine for you, but Jesus addressed seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And he follows this rhythmic pattern with each letter to the seven churches, concluding with a promise. And it ends with this. To the one who is victorious. There's that word. That word for victorious is often translated triumphant or conqueror. Or I like this one when we think about suffering. Overcomer. That's victorious, to overcome to triumph over. And Jesus actually tells us how someone becomes victorious. He defines it for us. You know what he says? He says they overcame. They became victorious over Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What does that tell us? That even though many of the people died, They suffered and died. They were victorious because they did not shrink back from their faith. They said, I trust you, God, even if suffering comes my way. I suffering, I I trust you even if you don't answer the question why. I trust you, I trust you, I trust you. And God says, because Jesus died for them and forgives them, they're victorious. And that's what it means to live a life of victory, to be an overcomer. Jesus saw the suffering. He, he saw all of that, and he said, you are the victorious ones, and the second death can't touch you. Hell can't grab you by the ankles. And the kingdom of God brings us infinitely more than earthly riches ever could. The, the problem with the health-wealth kind of gospel that gets talked a lot, especially on TV, that says, if, you know, everything will go well for you, is it makes God... A means to the end. God doesn't mean, need to be the means to any end. God is the end. And, and, and the problem is that when we begin to define victorious as having all of this stuff, I mean, we really minimize what God wants to give us. If we think the most that what God wants to give us is a bunch of money, then wouldn't all the people with money be really happy? And they're not You know what happens when people win the lottery? They completely implode, usually within a year. I mean, have you read the stories? I mean, like a really high number. Why? Because they use that money selfishly and it just, so it must mean that God has something better for us than even the comforts of this world. And he does. Things like hope and peace and fellowship and love. you, You can't buy those things but God will give them to us. You know that lady who came to my office? We sat down together, and I just opened up the book of Job, and we began to look at Job's life, and we began to talk. And, and I said, you know, do you think Job deserved this suffering? And she's like, no, I don't, I don't think he really deserved it. I said, w- what did God think of Job? And she said, God really thought a lot of Job. God thought that Job would still love him even in the midst of all of his suffering. I'm like, do you think that God might still love you in the midst of your suffering? And when I asked her that, it was like that thousand pounds of weight fell off her shoulders. I mean, she physically changed in that moment. And it wasn't anything that I said. It was just the truth of Scripture makes a difference in our lives, doesn't it? When we really understand God, that makes a difference in our lives. And I want to tell you, If you come beaten down because of suffering, I want you to hear this, not from me, but from Scripture. God still loves you. And I can't tell you why you might be suffering. I could spitball some answers and theories out there, but I don't know. But I'll tell you what. God has not given up on you. And God may be saying, I am so proud of you for loving me even in the midst of your suffering that I will do great things with you and through you even in the midst of all of this. And I want to ask you, church, you hang on to that. Avoid all the pat answers and the silly little cliches. That's not helpful. Suffering is real, and we feel it deeply. But we trust in a God who loves us, and the greatest resource we have to hang on to is the knowledge that Jesus suffered for us. And one day, he's going to flip all of the suffering upside down. And one day, there will be no more tears, no more pain, and all of the suffering will be wiped away. But even in this moment when we feel suffering, God is with us and he gives us enough to survive and to move forward, even with joy. God only lets Satan do enough in this world to harm what Satan plans. He gives Satan enough rope to hang himself. Because everything that Satan wants to accomplish in Job life gets turned upside down. And the same can be true for you. So if you come suffering today, I want you to know that God loves you. And he is your source for hope and love. And he cares for you. And maybe you brought the suffering on yourself and maybe you didn't. Either way, God cares for you. So would you let Jesus be your source of comfort in your suffering? If you'd like somebody to pray with you, talk with you. Uh, if, if you even are ready to be baptized and say yes to Jesus, we've had baptisms the last couple of weeks and be glad to have another one today. But if you would, uh, would you stand up? And there'll be some folks up front that would love to pray for you. And uh, let's just pray together right now. God, we thank you that you care for us so much. And this question of why has haunted so many people. And I know it's haunting some people right now. And God, help us just to take a deep breath And to say, God, we know you're in control. We know you give us lots of choices about whether to still trust you or not. And God, we trust you. We know that you're our only hope. And that you can give us something better than we even thought we wanted her on our own. God, thank you that you allowed your son Jesus to suffer for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.